You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right, we're back. Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast, Episode 3. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from ESPN.com, and I am sick. I have a cold. So at this point, if it sounds like I've been up all night smoking darts and shooting whiskeys, uh, that's why. I've got a little throat thing going on, but because we do this for free and we don't, you know, we don't get paid. We're just doing this for fun. There's no way I could possibly skip an, skip an episode. So I'm yeah, here. You can't call in sick for this kind of gig. Here as usual. Uh, across the table from me, MMA Fighting's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing? Well, I was going to mention uh, how I have a little bit of a sore throat, but then I heard you talking about how you're sick. And it's, it honestly, it came off really poorly, really unprofessional. Uh, so now that I've seen that, that terrifying counterexample, I'm not going to talk about my own health woes. I'm going to suck it up, and I'm going to act like I've been there before. I'm just going to charge ahead. I guess you uh, you know where you got the sore throat at this point, too. You can probably trace the the origin. Was it of, when we were making out on Thursday night? I wasn't going to bring that up on the podcast, but maybe it was. I don't know. I'm you know I'm, I'm not sure. It, also, before we get into regular podcast stuff, I think it's important for listeners to know that Chad plays in a local uh, punk rock and roll band here in Missoula called Total Combined Weight, and that uh, they performed, I'm going to say, a rollicking set on Thursday night where they played through the entirety of the Minor Threat discography. Chad, what was most amazing to me was I saw you guys getting set up, kind of doing your little sound check thing. It was like I turned and looked briefly away, and then I turned back, and you had all taken your shirts off, oh, just in the blink of an eye. It was hot up there, man. It was I, I mean, did you coordinate it? Did the idea occur to all of you at the exact same time? Were you that much in sync because of all the rehearsals you've been doing? I'd love to say yes, but no. But I do want to say that I was the first. I took my <laughs> shirt off first, so I was a real trendsetter in that. Um, and actually, it came off much better than we had anticipated. Except for now you're sick, and I think I yeah, think those no, two the, events might be tied together. Well, we all knew there was going to be some aftermath. We knew that this wasn't. we weren't going to get in and out of this thing with no repercussions whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, it, it came off better than I think we ever could have anticipated. By the time we were done, I felt like learning 26 Minor Threat songs was worthwhile. And before we played, I would have told you there was no possible way that that was how I was going to feel. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I was, I was pleased about that. Uh, the only bummer is now that we have to return to playing our own songs. Which yeah, people are far less excited yeah, people about. People don't seem to like those as much as when we just show up and do a cover set of one of the greatest hardcore bands of all time. Go figure. Um, did we do our disclaimer? I don't think we did. No. Uh, yeah, hit, the, hit them the, with a disclaimer. The, the the opinions expressed here on the co-main event podcast are those of of Ben Folks and Chad Dundas alone. So don't take these opinions as any sort of reflection on our employers, uh, ESPN.com or MMA Fighting. Uh, we're just here. We're just two guys talking in a room. And so uh, yeah, if you if you have a problem with it, blame blame us. And be careful of where you listen to this because there will be some adult themes and or language if you hadn't, hadn't already noticed. Yeah, this is probably going to be not safe for work unless you work at a bar or like a... If you're a Hell's Angel, yeah. this is probably going to be you, just fine. If you're a prospect guarding the Hell's Angel clubhouse, you'd probably be okay. <laughs> um, how, I don't, who listens to these things at work? Like what kind of job could you have? Just sitting in an office, There are a I lot guess? of bullshit jobs out there. I guess so. I guess so. Um, uh, we, we should also mention the the podcast now. Uh, we're into episode three. If you're somehow just joining us, I mean, you will be able to follow along if you haven't listened to episodes one and two. 
Oh, uh, man, this is going to be like The Wire. If you didn't watch the first two episodes, you're totally lost. Yeah. Well, uh, you might want to go back to episode one to hear our five solemn vows, which will cover stuff like why we will say whatever we feel like and uh, why we will not be interviewing any fighters. Uh, but uh, it's worth noting the show already. Chad, would you say runaway success or breakout success? Yeah, blockbuster success. Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, Juggernaut is what I would say. Yeah, I would say the biggest success uh, since the cellular telephone. Yeah, I would say that that, that that is accurate. As culturally important. Yeah, it's been a huge week for us. Uh, not only are we available on iTunes, we've actually been available on iTunes for a couple of weeks. But Even though you like, assholes keep asking as if like we're, we haven't tweeted out that link to the iTunes thing half a dozen times already. It also seems like people bring their complaints straight to us before they even go on iTunes <laughs> to search yeah, for the yeah. podcast. Yeah, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they just assume that, that we have no fucking clue? Also, we're on Stitcher. Uh, Stitch, after much, Stitch, yeah, Stitcher Smart Radio. After much, yeah, hue I still and cry. don't understand what that is. Still don't get the concept, but people it, seem into it. I think it just makes it easier for people to listen to the podcast on their phones and i iPods, iPads, well, transistor radios. <laughs> now we're know. on there, so stop bitching about it. Just go on there and li- I mean, you assholes better listen to it on there now. After all the the questions we got about it, uh, Chad finally uh figured out what it was and, and talked to whoever he needed to talk to and you know apparently paid off some teamsters or whatever you have to do to get on there and, and now we're there pulled some strings we're up on stitcher uh without further ado i think we will go ahead and segue into our listener mail se- uh segment uh for this week we got a bunch of good questions from you guys out there so we picked out three of our of our favorites or just the ones we thought were most interesting. And to be fair, there were a lot of good questions this time. I was critical of the questions last week. This time, too many good ones to to possibly answer them all. But rest assured, uh, those of you who sent questions in that we will not answer, it's not because I think you're stupid this time. I think you actually did do a pretty good job asking questions, most of you. Uh, Our first question comes from John Ohm. I'm pretty sure that I probably slaughtered the... uh the pronunciation of his last name, but he asks, this is a general question, but you can comment, but can you comment on the current state of ed- of MMA media? While there are individuals such as both of you who treat the subject matter with the integrity and standards of traditional journalism, I guess this guy has not heard this podcast. Well, no, he knows how to get on the podcast. Yeah, there. He, he goes on to say, there are outlets that seem to have major conflicts of interest and overall shitty reporting standards. The Brazilian media comes to mind, <laughs> but there are also U.S. websites that are based on rumor mongering and trolling to get page views that and get UFC credentials. How does this affect your job, Ben? Um... I'm going to say not at all. I don't know. Uh, Okay, first of all, the the shot of the Brazilian media is, I think, warranted, but at the same time, we have to account for some cultural differences there. They do things differently media-wise in Brazil. That's just kind of how they approach it. It's not necessarily to say that theirs is worse than ours, although I am at times a little embarrassed for members of the Brazilian media when you see them. But... uh, they just have a different kind of standard and different expectations, it seems, from their media. They're, it's, uh, I don't want to say more jokey or that they don't take it as seriously, um, but there definitely seems to be a different attitude in general about what constitutes professionalism. That's not all the Brazilian media. Some people are, uh, are you know, serious, qualified professionals. Uh, then again, when I was at the event in Rio, a guy at the post-fight press conference was wearing a fake nose and badgering people in interviews. So... And w- when I was at the post-fight press cons press conference for UFC 136, uh, I will say, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen at a a MMA press conference. It, this was when uh, 
Frankie Edgar defeated Gray Maynard uh, to retain his title um, in back last October. And the you know everybody hurries up to wait to get to the press conference because you want to get a seat. Yeah. Where, you know you can see and your recorder will pick stuff. Get up. some free cookies. So it, was, it was crowded in there. We were all kind of sitting around, and this Brazilian member of the Brazilian media was sitting right in front of me. And, you know, if you've ever been to a a post-fight press conference, you know that the fighters really don't want to be there. Like, if you win, you show up to kind of, you know, bask in it a little bit. But the losing fighters don't want to be there. Uh, And It's really like pulling teeth to get them there. So we're sitting there, and, like, the press conference goes on and on for a while. And it's just getting to the point when you're like, all right, we should wrap this up. Like, these guys. Yeah, no one's going to use this last five minutes anyway. Yeah, and then the, the Brazilian guy was sitting right in front of me, takes the mic, and he goes, hey, Frankie, I got a question for you, bro. And he holds up is his... Is that your Brazilian nah, I just I decided not to do one. Uh-oh. I decided just to That's say what he said. Which, which was, hey, Frankie, I got a question for you, bro. Holds up his smartphone to, to the microphone, presses play, and he just plays the theme song to Rocky over the uh, the PA. Not a question. And that's that's all he did. And what, what did Frankie Edgar do to that? To his credit, like, Frankie Edgar, he played it off pretty well, man, considering that, like, he had just fought, uh, you know, four-plus rounds with Gray Maynard and... and uh, Totally didn't want to be there. I think he said something about how Rocky was his hero growing up, and like he actually fashioned an answer out of it, which yeah. I, was, I was kind of surprised. Well, that is impressive for him to manage to treat something that is not at all a question as if it were a question yeah, and that, then answer that. That, and I will also mention the when I was at the Cain Velasquez Junior Dos Santos fight, and Junior Dos Santos uh, won, and then they were leaving the octagon. That was the last fight of the night. So after the, the last fight of the night, all the reporters like jump up and race into the press conference room to sit there and wait for 45 minutes for it to start. So I was kind of like standing there waiting for Junior Dos Santos to go out, and these two members of the Brazilian media just just shoulder-blocked me out of the way so they could get to, to Junior Dos Santos and like slap five with him and, and do bro grabs and stuff like that. It was uh, it was an interesting experience. To but say the I least. mean, to the larger question about, I mean, I think one of the good things about the Internet is that it allows for all different types of journalism, uh, including some things that maybe some people don't regard as journalism. But it just requ- it, it allows a bunch of different approaches, uh, a bunch of different people to kind of put their spin on things. And I don't think that's bad. I mean, different sites have different appeals. Some you go to because it's hard news. Others you go to more for analysis or features. And some you go to just because it's, you know, fun, crazy shit. I think there's a place for all of that. I mean, and if you feel like a lot of the MMA media are shitty then i guess that's better for those of us who maybe you personally think are good because you're listening to this podcast question number two comes from claire hammond who i'm gonna assume and if i'm not mistaken sounds like a female all right how about that female listener aside from our wives and maybe sometimes maggie hendrix we have another female i don't think maggie hendrix really listens seem like she listened to the first Eh, one she'll give us a click out of pity but i don't think she's gonna sit there and listen to the whole thing well we do it seems have a, a female listener at least one she asks do you guys cheer for fighters if you're at an event? Question mark. Or if you're watching on TV? Question mark. Because I don't know how you couldn't show being happy over the last few weeks to see Daniel Cormier win, or cheer seeing Dan Hardy win, or Kane smash Bigfoot, and of course seeing Dos Santos win. Well, I, I think we know who her personal favorites are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, first of all, it's pretty clear. I don't know if it actually says it on the credential, but it's definitely on the credential application that you are not allowed to cheer from press row. Uh, that is strictly forbidden. Although I have seen it violated on a number of occasions. Uh, again, I mean, the Brazilian media might be more guilty of this than, you know, American media. I, going to the event in Rio, it was there were standing ovations from the Brazilian media pretty much every time a Brazilian fighter won, which was almost every fight on that card, if you recall. Um, 
But no, you're definitely not supposed to do that. Uh, even if everybody knows that, uh, you know, you, you were closer with one of the fighters and the other. Uh, again, I think, you know, it's natural some in some situations to be like, well, I really want to see something good happen for this guy. I feel like this guy deserves it. Or, you know, um, I just don't want to see anything bad happen to this guy. That kind of stuff is natural. I think you got to try and uh, kind of push that stuff down and, and not show it. Yeah, I saw a guy bounced from a college football game once for cheering in the press box. It was... Was this a University of Montana football I think game? it way yeah, I was University of Montana and the guy was cheering for the opposite team although I can't can't recall who that was. Um and everything you said is is right. Uh on the other hand though, you know, everybody gets into this gets into this business. Everyone starts following and covering this sport because they really like the sport. Clearly nobody gets into it for the money. Uh and if they did, <laughs> they made a poor decision uh with their future. Um, but I, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like after covering it for a while, I have very few allegiances left to individual fighters. I would say that whatever, uh, I wouldn't say allegiances, but when you cover it for a while and you get to know the people, uh, the people that you like or want to see do well are completely different people than when you just watch it. Uh, it's also, I mean, it's harder, I think after covering it for a while to really, uh, sometimes enjoy it uh as much uh because it is your job and you just look at it differently but sometimes the guys who you really like as reporters um are not always the best fighters right. you want to see dan hardy do well you want to see yeah. kenny florian do well frankly because when kenny florian says he's going to call you at three o'clock he, he calls you at three o'clock yeah he calls kenny you florian will call you right at three o'clock if that's what he says however uh you know one of the Diaz brothers, great fighters, not necessarily as easy to, to work with in that regard. Or, I mean, but a guy like Daniel Cormier, who happens to be a really good fighter and a really good dude. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, when but then, you know, Josh Barnett is also a really good dude. You watch yeah. that fight, and that was one where you thought, well, hey, I don't even know how I think this is going to go or how I think it should go. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, some guys you like better than others. Some uh, who you just come to regard as assholes and who probably feel the same way about you uh, that you're are not particularly sad to see get knocked out. Every once in a while, it seems like somebody gets what he has coming to him in this sport. Um, in general, though, you meet so many guys and talk to so many different fighters that uh, I don't think, you know, you'll get accused of being a nut hugger for some, for some dude every time you write a positive article about him. Uh, you write a, a, a slightly negative article about the same dude, and suddenly you're a hater. So you can't, you can't win in that regard. You just got to accept it. And everybody has opinions. You know, everybody in every journalistic walk of life whether they're political reporters or or food writers or or entertainment writers everybody has opinions that but that doesn't uh disqualify you from being fair when you write it's 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 a it's two different things anyway uh question three comes from tiago riberio uh who hits us up on twitter a lot seems noted podcast enthusiast like a good dude um his question is is there anything the ufc can do about this plethora of injuries something other than saying quote it is what it is, end quote, and shit happens every day. <laughs> well, they've already tried that. They've already tried saying it is what it is and shit happens every day, and clearly that hasn't had too much of a positive impact for them. As far as what they can do, I mean, I think the UFC can offer fighters some helpful advice. Uh, can say, hey, don't train until, you know, you tear out your knees and maybe, you know, take it easy a little bit more, train smarter rather than harder, but you can't really make the fighters do anything. They're going to do whatever they think is the right thing to do. Uh, and some of it is just the nature of the sport, that they are going to get injured from time to time. You go in there, you know, beating other people in the head with uh, tiny gloves on and a, a cast of athletic tape around your hand. That kind of stuff is going to happen from time to time. 
maybe one thing that the UFC could do, if anything. I mean, I've heard people say, hey, now that they offer the fighters insurance, there's more injury pullouts because these guys know that they can't. Well, they don't make any money when they're sitting at home with a torn ACL. So even if the UFC pays for the surgery, it doesn't necessarily, it's not like a life of leisure where they're hanging out like at home just watching daytime soap operas all the time and, and not training. Uh, the fighters want to fight. That's why they're in this. So they don't want to be injured any more than the UFC wants to see them injured. Yeah, and if you pull out of a fight because you're injured, you know, good, as far as I'm concerned. Well, good yeah. for you as See, a fighter. See, that's the thing. I mean, maybe if there's anything the UFC could do, it's that the UFC takes such a, a kind of hard-line stance about you lose a couple and you're done, you know, or how, you know, no matter where you are in the standings, you lose one and they kind of instantly forget about you. You knock you down the ranks. And some of that is inevitable. That's just the way the sport works. But some of that, I think, makes guys – uh less likely to step in and take a fight if they don't feel that they're at their physical peak if they think well hey UFC wants me to get in there with these bruised ribs or this you know broken toe or or whatever is bothering me um, so that they can make their money off of me but if I get in there with these bruised ribs and this broken toe and I lose nobody's going to want to hear that the UFC's not going to want to hear it and the fans aren't going to want to hear it so it'll be just no sympathy for me I mean you you can think of fights where you knew the guy was injured going in or you found out about it right afterwards uh, six months or a year later, you go back and you look at that guy's record. Very seldom do people still remember that he was injured or he's dealing with whatever. People, I mean, that kind of stuff does not get factored in your favor. So maybe that's, I don't know how, how exactly the UFC could change that, but I think that's part of it. And I'm not going to discount the UFC's continually increased schedule either. I think as you continue to hold more and more shows and as you continue to sort of ratchet up the workload on these athletes, um, that more and more guys probably get injured. I don't, you know, I'm not The a workload, scientist. I think, is, is something, too, that, I mean, because the workload is not just the training and regular athlete portion stuff. The USC asks a lot of those guys to go and make appearances. You know, we got an event in town. If you're not actively in a training camp, sometimes even when you are, they want you to show up there, sign some autographs, and, you know, be around, be, be available for promotional appearance stuff. And that kind of stuff is not really super optional. You know, they tell you to be there. They expect you to be there. And that kind of stuff, it's possible that if the guys feel like, hey, the USC is making me take two, three days, you know, and uh, go to Pittsburgh or whatever to, to appear at some stuff, then I got to make up that lost time when I get back in the gym and maybe that leads to some of the stuff. So, uh, I mean, there is a lot asked of these guys, a lot of demands on their time and, and maybe some of them handle it better than others. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an expert, but I would just guess that the increased workload probably uh, causes some injuries that weren't happening a few years ago. Uh, for now, we're going to go ahead and segue into our discussion uh, in round number one. Round one. It was revealed this week that Frank Mir received a therapeutic use exemption and was using testosterone replacement therapy when he lost to Junior Dos Santos uh, in the heavyweight title fight at the UFC a couple weekends ago. Oddly enough, in a fight where Frank Mir was a replacement fighter for a fighter who'd been disqualified for using testosterone. Huh, how about so, that? Um, man, this is, the, this is the kind of thing that at this point has just got to make your brain hurt. I don't know if this is the testosterone replacement exemption that makes us, that is the essentially the straw that breaks the camel's back. Is this the one that makes us think that, that all of these are bullshit and that... If you didn't think that already, that this is conclusive proof that these guys are cheating, I don't know, man. This one seems bad to me. It, it seems bad, I think, because of the timing, especially. Because it's like, you know, as you said, Alistair Overeem gets pulled out because of, you know, testosterone, which he did not have permission for being in his system. 
Frank Mir asks first. They say okay, uh, and he gets the fight. It's like Junior Dos Santos has got to be feeling like, holy shit, I cannot get away from dudes who are just riding a wave of testosterone, no matter what I do. Switch the opponent, doesn't matter. Still going to end up fighting a guy with more testosterone than his body is naturally making. I, I think that this, though, is a thing that, I mean, first of all, Frank is going to say probably the same thing everybody says, well, hey, I got permission to do it, it was legal, it's within the rules, I didn't break any rules, all of which technically true. At the same time, why didn't he tell anybody that he was doing it? When Ariel Helwani asked him in a pre-fight interview, you know, what do you think about TRT in MMA? And Frank said, you know, I don't really want to talk about it, I'm trying to stay away from that issue. Uh, if you thought that you were doing something totally fair, not at all illegal, not at all cheating, not at all unethical, why wouldn't you say at that point, well, actually, Ariel, you know what, I'm, I have a therapy to use exemption because I have a legitimate medical need for it. If that were true, and if you felt like that were 100% true, why wouldn't you just say it then? And I feel like for some of these other guys that we know are using testosterone, there is a, you know, there could be, if you wanted to look at it that, that way, like a, a realistic reason for them doing it. Like Dan Henderson is in his 40s. Like maybe his testosterone is a little bit low. Uh, you, you know, a guy like Chael Sonnen wrestled his whole life, cut a ton of weight when he was, you know, a small child. Maybe that somehow screwed up his endocrine system. And, and so he needs testosterone replacement therapy. None of that particularly is true for Frank Mir. Frank Mir is 33-year-old heavyweight old. Frank Mir. He is a year younger than I am, and he has been a UFC heavyweight fighter since he was like 22, 23 years old. So I am not sure where the low testosterone would come from in, in a guy like Frank Mir, if not from some kind of earlier... Not to mention abuse of substances. When these guys make this argument that they need testosterone, they paint it as if they could barely fucking get out of bed if they didn't have synthetic testosterone to inject themselves with. Like, oh, you guys don't understand. It's unhealthy for me to be living this way, especially, you know, competing at this high level if I don't have, you know, something to bring my testosterone levels up to a normal human being. What about when Frank Mir beat Noguera, uh, you know, a few months earlier in in, last December in, in Toronto? You know, was was he doing fine then? Because, you know, you never look at a point in Frank Mir's career where you could be like, oh, man, yeah, that's where I see he was definitely suffering from low testosterone. Look at the muscle wasting that's going on in that guy. You can see he's just lost all his muscle. Like, never. He was a behemoth before. He's actually, if anything, looks a little, like, softer uh, and less muscular now than he did, like, you know, back when he fought Shane Carwin in those days. So at what point was he just suffering through this terrible affliction uh, for which he could find no cure? That's the kind of thing that I think people look at now and they just don't buy it. Yeah, the more we learn about this stuff the more it seems like cheating. You know, you alluded to it a second ago that these guys, when they first reveal their their testosterone replacement therapy, they, they act like they need it to compete safely, like they can't get out of bed, et cetera, et cetera. Now it turns out that when Nate Marquardt fights for the Strikeforce welterweight title in his next fight, he's not going to be using testosterone replacement therapy. He got off of it. Yeah, which somehow managed to find a substitute without dying. In a way... Getting off of it seems almost more damning than being on it because yeah. he, of this song and dance that he put together, you know, when he, when he first got caught about how he needed it for his marriage and to, to train correctly. And now, no, I'm doing some other stuff for my health. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the thing is, uh, I got a mailbag uh, email through my Sports Illustrated mailbag this week from uh, a guy who, who wanted to remain anonymous for now, but is a urologist at, uh, let's say, a prominent Southern California uh, University Medical Center. Uh, who 
you know, as an MMA fan and was saying, you know, look, I can tell you as someone who deals with this kind of stuff that this is complete bullshit, that these guys do not need testosterone. And again, this is one of those things where I heard from a doctor or heard from a friend who talked to a doctor. But at the same time, I mean, he was telling me about various ways that you can lower your testosterone temporarily for the test. Uh, which you then turn around and show to the Nevada Athletic Commission, who will have a doctor review it over the phone, a doctor who is, again, not a urologist or an endocrinologist. Uh, and then he'll kind of give you the thumbs up, at least from what we saw in the, the Chalsonin situation. So, I mean, he says if you were taking synthetic testosterone, for example, without Athletic Commission approval, and then you just get off of it, uh, by that point, your body will have stopped creating its own testosterone because it's become accustomed to it, and then your levels will, will show up low on the test. I mean, I would be interested. I think we should do this. I think you and I, we don't necessarily have to go together. I don't like that look you're giving me. We could take separate cars. Okay. Um, but we go somewhere here in town, get our testosterone levels checked. All right? Let's just see. Let's see what the range is for a couple reasonably healthy uh, guys in their early 30s. I can tell you 30s. right now, mine is going to be off the charts. Well, I believe that. I, I'm just sitting here looking at this beard you got coming in right now. It looks like here you're rocking some some extra testosterone. You know, I would do that as long as we could get someone else to pay for it. Uh, it should be easy <laughs> to find someone to do it. The, 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 the radio commercials are nonstop these days about trying to help us out with our with our sexual performance and whatnot. I, I say we look into this. We figure out what our testosterone levels would be, and then, you know, See if we can get some information on how we could lower our, our test results. Because to me, I think the thing is when you start seeing so, like, what are the chances that this many professional athletes in their 20s and, and 30s, uh, I mean, what are the chances that people, that the general population has this many, like, this high a percentage of people who need synthetic testosterone? And the thing that gets me at this point is that, you know, after baseball kind of went through its PED uh, crisis. Now, now when you hear about guys testing positive in Major League Baseball, it's very rarely big stars. I mean, we had the one snafu with Ryan Braun a few months ago, but at this point, it's like, you know, it's nobodies. It's minor leaguers. It's guys who are just trying to hang on and make a roster who are trying to use PEDs. In the UFC at this point, it seems like all the guys who we know are on testosterone are huge stars. They're all guys who are fighting for the title. Like Frank Mir right. is on TRT. He just fought for the title. He replaced Alistair Overeem, who was apparently taking uh, synthetic testosterone. The next guy who's going to fight for the middleweight title is Chael Sonnen, who we know and admits is on TRT. And Mar what are you supposed to make of this if you're a 22-year-old fighter, uh, you know, and you're fighting in, in small shows, small regional events, trying to get trying to get noticed, Dreaming of one day being in the UFC, if you look at those guys. I mean, at that point, that's where I think this gets really pernicious is the guys who don't want to do it, who, who want to compete clean, but they look at that and they think, well, how can I possibly compete with these guys? If that's what all the big stars are doing, maybe I'm being naive to think that I could just do this clean. I mean, when I, my, my freshman year of college, when I unsuccessfully played football at the University of Redlands, which was a Division three school, uh, and like the entire defense was on steroids because they're a Division three school, so they don't test. You know, the team could have done their own testing if they wanted to find out who was on steroids, but they probably didn't want to know. They knew you're not going to get tested unless you get to like the title game or something, which was never going to happen for us. So it was rampant, and everybody knew it, and it was just kind of it, it was not even bothered to, to keep it a secret. And it was one of those things where if I had been seriously considering that staying there for four years and trying to make a serious go of playing football there. I would have felt like I had to do it in order to compete. Didn't do it, uh, you know, but Man, uh, I would love to see you just roided out of your mind. I think that'd be, <laughs> that'd be 
that'd be bring me a lot of personal joy just just to see. I actually had a friend who played several years in the in the CFL in the Canadian Football League, and when he after he retired, he came back and told me that the CFL has this rule that they have to have a certain number of Canadians on the team. Uh, so as a result, Wait, is, this, is this the plot of like a sports comedy film? <laughs> because it ought to be. Uh, the CFL has has to have a certain number of Canadians on the team. No and, rule that and, says an ape can't play football in the Canadian Football League. And as a result. Like the Canadian players in the CFL can basically do whatever they want because they can't cut them. They gotta, you know, they, they gotta just replace them with this quota Canadian, of Canadian right? players. So he told me every, basically every Canadian player in the CFL is on steroids. That's those. That's his charge, not mine. But <laughs> but anyway, that's that's what he said. Uh, let, let's talk real briefly. Like what can be done about this at this point? It seems to me like if guys are going to keep coming in and 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 claiming that they have low testosterone, you're going to have to increase the burden of proof on the on the fighters' part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that you, when you hear from guys who know a little something about doping, like Victor Conte, who came out immediately after the Chael Sonnen uh, hearing with the NSAC and was saying, look, you guys th- are acting like you're you're really getting serious about clamping down on this stuff and saying, hey, you guys got to submit to a test the morning after the fight. Well, that's not when he wants to be on testosterone. That's not when the guys want to be using. They don't want to have it coursing through their system on the night of the fight. Uh, they want to cycle up and then get off of it so that they peak at that time. So it makes no sense to test them then. I think the, the bad athletic commission was doing some of the right things by just testing guys randomly out of competition, like when all the heavyweights showed up for that press conference. That's how they popped Alistair Overeem for it. Um, but then now if you get guys saying, like, well, look, if I just ask first, everything will be fine. I mean, Keith Kaiser tells us that they only accept about 50% of the uh, the guys who, who request it then there must be a lot more guys requesting it than we know because we keep hearing about guys getting it. And that's the thing, too, is Chael Sonnen has this hearing that everybody knows about beforehand and has a chance to, to watch. Um, with Frank Mir, it's just kind of the secretive thing afterwards where, oh, by the way, he was on it. I mean, if you're Junior Dos Santos, don't you want to know that? Even if the Athletic Commission thinks that it's fair and, and legal, shouldn't that kind of stuff be public knowledge beforehand? Shouldn't, I mean, the commission sends out these emails saying everybody tested, every, all the tests came back clean. They said the same thing with this event. All the tests came back clean. It wasn't until somebody directly asked, okay, was this guy on on testosterone that they got a confirmation? I mean, if, they're, if the athletic commission thinks that they're doing everything on the up and up and the fighters think so, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be public knowledge before the fight. Victor Conti, an interesting follow on Twitter, by the way. Yes, if you're he not is. Following him already. Sometimes I wonder if he understands exactly how Twitter works. Well, he's not—he's not the youngest, hippest guy in That's the world. That's true. I could, you know, he seems to be doing okay to me for an for an older gentleman. He's active. He'd be on there anyway. Uh, speaking of Twitter, this brings us to far and away the most popular oh, new feature of the co-main event podcast from last week, making its second run: Master Tweet Theater. And now. Master Tweet Theater. And now it is time again for everyone's favorite segment that started last week, Master Tweet Theater, for which we welcome back Friend of the podcast, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you doing? A friend indeed. I take issue with you, sir. Oh, okay. What, what is it now? The last time you invited me into your home, you made a recording of me saying the N-word and broadcast it on computer radio. That's true. That is true. We, we did do those things. However, uh, in our defense, we, we talked about it. We decided you were covered under the Dr. Dre rules there. I mean, you were just reading King Mo Lawal's tweet. It's really... 
he who is to blame for your current predicament. I care not what your physician says. My reputation <laughs> was savaged. Well, <laughs> be that as it may, we're going to charge right ahead here with uh, our second edition of Master Tweet Theater. What do you got for us this week? I hope I shall not be required to castigate the gypsies. Number one, at Misha Tate, is there a video of you riding the horse? It's not for me. My team is asking. Ah, okay. So someone is asking Misha Tate if there is a video of her riding a horse, presumably after she had tweeted about riding a horse. If, if that's not the case, that would be even weirder. Uh, seems like we're dealing with kind of a creep and someone who is on a team of other creeps. Uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to suggest Uriah Faber. Interesting. Uh, let's see here. It's somebody who is keeping close tabs on Misha Tate. Um, I'm going to guess it's Ronda Rousey. Hmm. Fine guesses both, but both incorrect. Ah. It is, in fact, Liz Carmouche. Oh, no, that actually makes sense. Uh, Liz Carmouche, also a, a very good uh, Twitter for those of you out there who, who follow that sort of thing. Uh, I particularly enjoy uh, Titty Tuesdays that uh, Liz Carmouche has been known to do. One of the Internet's most popular sapphists. <laughs> what do you got next? All right, number two. I'm going to be honest. I was just intimidated by the guy wearing the arm wrestling championship shirt that had a rocking mustache. Ah, clever. Chad, you want, you want to take this one first? Let's see here. Uh, we know that it's someone who's, who's out checking out the dudes, um, watching maybe perhaps some pro professional arm wrestling. Um, I am going to guess Tom Lawler. It's not a bad guess. Uh... I think, I mean, clearly we're dealing with somebody who's a bit of a jokester, uh, and, you know, there's only so many fighters who can fit that bill appropriately on Twitter. I'm going to say one of my favorite tweeters and just all-around dudes in the fight game, Joe Benavidez. Wrong again on both counts. It is, in fact, Tim Kennedy. Ah, uh, okay. Well, Tim Kennedy is pretty funny, too, so I guess that makes sense. On to number three. Saw the midnight show of Snow White and the Huntsman, and it wasn't bad. The audience was filled with chatty dullards, however. The talking in the movie theater is annoying enough, but it was the dumbest shit ever these chicks were saying. He's fat. I like her dress. The amazing intelligence required to create the CGI effects in the film was in stark contrast to the yammering retards in the theater. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a Wait, wait a second, Sir Nigel. That sounds to me way too long to be a tweet. It's like a blog post. It was, in fact, an epic tweet. I have not remembered so much since Henry IV. It was combined. Oh, that's, so that's a number of tweets combined. Um, let me think about this. Somebody who would use the expression chatty dullards and someone who would be bothered by others talking in a theater. I am going to guess that it is learned man Joe Lazan. Huh, that's not bad. Uh, also, though, we have to take into account uh, the the retards. What was the what was the line about the retards? No, uh, yes, the amazing intelligence required to create the CGI effects in the film was in stark contrast to the yammering retards in the theater. <laughs> wow, 
Okay, so we're also dealing with somebody who somehow expects the same level of intelligence in the theater as you know behind the the scenes of the movie. Um, I'm going to say Kenny Florian. I'm sorry, you're both yet again incorrect. It is noted hashish eater Joe Rogan. Oh, man. Well, I guess that Joe Rogan seems like he would be impressed with CGI and yet would not tolerate some yammering retards. So I guess that, that makes sense. And shockingly went to the movies. <laughs> to see Snow White and the Huntsman, no less. All right, what, what's next? The next tweet. God is good! This sat, I'm gonna be bad! I just snorted two lines of gunpowder! Forgive me, Lord, for what I'm about to do, sat night! <laughs> wow, I hope that that's not literal. Two lines of gunpowder would seem like a really bad idea. Um, just the same, I, I guess I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend f for the moment that uh, we're dealing with somebody, anybody who's talking about what they're gonna do sat night. I guess they're liable to do anything. Uh, I'm going to say Sean McCorkle. Chad? Hmm. Interesting. Someone who just had a fight, I assume. Uh, someone who enjoys tweeting and abbreviations. I am going to guess... Is it possible that we went back to the well two times in a row for the, the poet Philip Baroni? I'm, in fact, it is. Oh, two times in a row. Wow. Man. Wow. Well, that's just luck. That's just luck on at, my part. At this point, the poet Philip Baroni is on 100% of Master Tweet Theater editions. That's amazing. That's, that's a record, I think. Homer Horace Baroni. <laughs> Indeed, Sir Nigel. All right, last one. Let's see if I can uh, redeem myself here. The final tweet. Mazagati the fight killer. Four mins of nothing in the ground in the first round. The worst ref ever. Drives me nuts. Well, I assume you're trying to indicate exclamation points there? And capital letters. Oh, okay. Also the number four for wow. four. Well, I feel sorry for the, the listeners at home who didn't get to see that vein popping out of your neck when you did that. It was amazing. Chad, do you want to go first on this one? Boy, uh... Someone with a with a pitched criticism of Steve Mazzagotti. You know, I guessed Mitrione last time, and I was wrong, but I think I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to guess Matt Mitrione. Now, there can be only one person that hates Steve Mazzagotti that much, and and that's that's UFC president Dana White. You are correct, sir. Dana White. <laughs> I mean, again... Not the first time we've heard Dana White criticize Steve Mazzagotti. Chad, your thoughts on a fight promoter seeming to have a a blood feud with a referee that somehow ends up working, seems like, every single Vegas event? Uh, well, I don't think Steve Mazzagotti could possibly be paid enough as a, <laughs> as a professional MMA referee to take the abuse from Dana White. Um, I'd guess I don't have a problem with it. It seems like when, when whenever Dana issues a complaint against Steve Mazzagotti, he's he's far from the only one. So um, I'll take it. You know, it may not fall uh, under the, the 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 veil of what's appropriate for a promoter, but what what does really with what Dana does? He's he's an outspoken guy. I'm okay with it. Not to mention, though you mentioned Steve Mazzagotti. At this point, being a ref an MMA referee has to be ruining his life, right? Because it's he just takes a ton of shit for it constantly. Uh, and eventually, you know, Mama Mazagati can't even log on to the internet and use the Google to look up her, her baby boy without seeing all this kind of crap. I, I would just think it's got to be at some point not worth it anymore unless he's just a huge MMA fan and the most dedicated referee ever. In which case, you know, uh, more power to him. Maybe he'll get better. He loves the guard. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. And, and thank you, Sir Nigel, for, for stopping by. Uh, we always enjoy your presence. Uh, you want to tell us uh, what else you've got going on outside of your, your MMA interest these days? Yes, sir. I will be playing the title role in Footloose on Broadway, Robert Footloose, who teaches <laughs> a town to dance. Wow, that seems like a... Like on Broadway, that's like a breakout role for you, is it not? Yes, yes, it is. Although I am quite familiar with the, the boards, just not those particular boards on Broadway. <laughs> well, best of luck to you, Sir Nigel, and hopefully uh, you don't become such a big star that you don't have time for Master Tweet Theater. Fortunately, I, I think we're going to be okay on that one. God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> Round two. The welterweight division in the UFC is now in a bit of a sticky, unclear situation. You've got champion George St. Pierre, still sidelined with injury, interim champion Carlos Condit, who has yet to even act as if he wants to defend the interim title, uh, Nick Diaz out with suspension, Martin Campman notching a win over previous up-and-coming uh, contender Jake Ellenberger, uh, plus, you got Johnny Hendricks sitting around there waiting for the UFC to tell him something to do as well. Uh, Chad, what the hell is going on right now with the, the UFC welterweight division, and what should we do about it? Oh, it's a mess. It's a mess. I think that the that the quickest fix, in, to my mind, is that you have Carlos Condit defend the interim title. I don't understand. I have not understood since the beginning why you would even award Condit an interim title if he's not going to defend it before George Who does he defend it against? Well, I would say prior to last weekend, he should have defended against Jake Ellenberger, but <laughs> well, we saw how that turned out with with uh, Martin Kamen, and that's part of the problem with this whole thing, man, is that it seems like, you know, because the entire division is sort of on hold waiting for uh, George St. Pierre to get back, guys like Jake Ellenberger, who by all rights probably should have been the number one contender, uh, has to take these needless risks against guys like Martin Kamen, and in mixed martial arts, man, shit happens. Like, you make a couple of mistakes, and... Uh, and you, you end up losing a fight. And, and I don't know. That's a pretty, to me, that's a pretty tough sell of what you tell a guy like Jake Ellenberger at this point, um, especially since it seemed like the fight could have easily been stopped in his favor in the first round. And in the second round, I thought the stoppage was fine. I didn't really see a problem with it. But it does bring up the, the fact, like, if you're going to give Campman the opportunity to come back in the first, maybe, yeah. you, maybe you owe the same thing to Ellenberger well, in the second. To me, I mean, the thing, you bring up the, why isn't Carlos Conda defending the interim belt? To me, this brings up a, a problem in general with interim titles, which I am no fan of at all. I, I wrote a Sports Illustrated column about it last week. Uh, that one's talking more about the, the interim title situation that they're going to get going in the bantamweight division. Uh, and I took some shit from it from people who emailed in and said, oh, no, I love interim titles. It's important. You got But then here's the thing. Like you said, the division is on hold until George St. Pierre is healthy again. I don't care what kind of hardware you give out to how many people it doesn't matter until George St. Pierre comes back. We well, all yeah. know who and the champion is. It's, it's it's a bullshit promotional gimmick. Well, and the thing is, if Condit's not going to defend the title until St. Pierre comes back, then he's actually not the interim champion. He's just the number one contender. Even if he does defend the title, it, the title itself is number one contender. It's, it's just a physical manifestation of number one contender status. And I could see how some guys would feel like they want that because of how easily and sometimes capriciously the UFC will take away that number one contender status at the same time though I mean the the whole thing that makes a title belt special uh is that there's only one of them there's only one in each weight class and only the baddest man in each weight class gets to have it yeah true but I mean I think an interim title makes sense in the instance when 
the interim champion is going to defend it against other people while the champion is out because then you can make the case that the interim championship means that the division is going to sort of keep marching forward and not be caught in this kind of suspended animation waiting for the champion to get back in the case where you give the guy a championship belt and then you're like but you're not going to defend it you just have to sit around and wait for the actual champion to get back then it doesn't make any sense at all but that, I mean again though I feel like you just you're just passing around a kind of mean no one is really sitting around proud right now that they were an interim champion of anything no true uh, the belt seems that, to mean the least to the guys who actually have it yeah I mean it's just it's just something that looks cool I guess and that you can put on the the mantle at home uh, but I think the the whole idea is that it, we all know who the champion is if he's gonna be out so long that uh, you know you feel like the division is being completely hijacked then strip him of the the, the title and put it back in the circulation uh, the interim belt, it's its kind of meaningless. It's just something that allows you to say on the fight poster, you know, for the championship, for the UFC welterweight champion. You know, and right, it's they're not that, even it's doing just, that. Yeah, well, and you don't even need it anymore to as a justification to go five rounds because you can go five rounds of the main event now anyway. So there's really just no reason to have it in my mind. And especially, as you say, it makes zero sense if you guys not going to defend it. But that's the moment it seems like the welterweight division had has the opposite problem that it had, you know, a year or two ago when George St. Pierre is just cleaning everybody out and he's just fighting the same guys over and over again. Now, there's a bunch of new guys right there kind of ready to go, but there's something that that's stopping all of those fights. Uh and I can't necessarily say, I mean, do you want to see Nick Diaz have another go with Carlos Condit to see who deserves to fight GSP? Uh should Condit just be able to kick his feet up and wait you know it should johnny Hendricks would also feel like hey i i'm just gonna sit around and wait for things to clear up and then i'll, I'll take a shot at at whoever's left standing whoever has the the real belt when it's all over which from a, a logical standpoint makes sense for him that would be a good thing to do but here's where the ufc should exercise that power it has to be like no you don't get to do what would be smart for your career and rational for you to decide because we need some goddamn action in this division right and now i guess we're told that uh, Martin Campman will fight Johnny Hendricks, I think, is the rumor, or I don't know if that's been confirmed or not, but that's the general line of and that's thinking. that's a good fight. I'll watch that fight. But again, the, yeah, that, that's a good fight, but the way that you have to sell that fight is is Martin Campman, who I believe only has three wins in a row now. The way you have to sell that fight is to say, oh, if not for a couple of iffy judges' decisions, Martin Campman would be on a seven-fight win streak. And to me, that just sort of calls into question the the meaning and the nature of wins and losses in the entire sport. Oh, I mean, you know, they got to sell the fights, and let's, you know, that that's always been the, the reality of this this industry, whether we like it or not. But the thing is, what are they fighting for at this point? They're not fighting for the number one contendership because if Condit's the interim champion, then logically it would follow that he gets the shot at George St. Pierre when he comes back, right? So, are you going to try and sell me on this as a big deal? as a number two contender as the the guy who gets or the number one contender for the interim title like that's where it starts to get really convoluted to me they they got to put that if you're going to have that carlos condit sit around you got to put you know that number one contendership which is the interim title back into circulation so that something there seems to be some movement happening right now it's everybody just trying to get in the best position for when gsp comes back and things can resume as normal i agree and i think that like right now there seems to be this like push to have saint pierre get back from his injury as fast as he can and i don't think that there needs to be that push if you put the interim title back into circulation clearly the welterweight division is better when gsp is a part of it but if you were going to have carlos condit actually defend his belt 
then I think it would take some of the pressure off St. Pierre to get back because you could have Hendricks fight Campman in a number one contender fight, and then the winner of that would fight Condit at some point down the road, and I think that you could easily squeeze those two fights in before St. Pierre is truly ready to come back. Instead, the whole division is just kind of put on hold. They push the pause button on it, and, and it's kind of sad because with all the, the, you, the new talent that you just alluded to uh, all kind of swimming around in this division at the same time, it feels like they're all sort of in suspended animation, and I think that a guy like Jake Ellenberger really got the short end of the stick in, in terms of, of the timing of that. Man, you have so much sympathy for Jake Ellenberger, don't I you? Just think he, I just think it was a screw job for him to even be in that fight against Martin Campman. But then again, we go back to the same thing. If you don't think you can beat Martin Campman, then you you can't think that you should be UFC champion, No, right? but that, that's, that's what everybody says, but I'm not sure that that, ar- that argument really holds water. It's like saying if... if you know, if if a pitcher gets a home run hit off him in the in the regular season, that he'll never be good in the playoffs. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think they're a little different. Again, once we start mixing our sports the analogies, sport, we're, yeah, we're but, asking for trouble. Okay, here's the thing. Let me ask you this: of all these people we've talked about, as you know, welterweights who are, as Dana White would say, in the mix. Do you think any of them has what you would term a good shot at beating GSP? Yeah, I would say Jake Ellenberger. I don't. I don't know if I Jesus, would say. Here we go. I don't man. know if I would say good shot. I'm going to go to your house right now, and I bet I'm going to find a Jake Ellenberger <laughs> poster on your bedroom door. Am I not? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if, what, what kind of terms we're on at this point. <laughs> uh, well, I would say either Jake Ellenberger or Johnny Hendricks, because I think those are the two guys that have the wrestling ability to keep George St. Pierre on his feet. Because the way George St. Pierre has been winning fights, the you know ever since he lost to Matt Serra, he's been going out and blowing everybody away with his takedowns. I think that Ellenberger, except for when he fights a guy like Josh Koscheck, and you know, and then he just jabs the shit out of him. Yeah, but but I would say that either uh, Jake Ellenberger or a Johnny Hendricks is a more dangerous striker than than Koscheck. Like those guys can put you to sleep with one punch. And I, well, I Koscheck's put some people to sleep. He, who? Who was Koscheck put to sleep? Uh, the the Japanese guy. What uh, I, I, his name escapes me at the moment. He knocked that guy uh, Yoshida. Uh, right? Wow, this is a professional. This is a professional. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. The moment, but come on, MMA he, professional MMA journalist Ben Folks. Uh, I no. I mean, you can't. I just you're just being obstinate now. You can't sit over there and tell me that you think that Josh Koscheck is as dangerous a striker as either Johnny Hendricks or or Jake Ellenberger. Uh, I mean. I think we still need to to see more of Johnny Hendricks before we, you know, he he's hit some people with some good shots and, and he clearly has some some natural power in there. Uh, I don't see him doing that to GSP. Right, and and the thing that really would worry me about Ellenberger is the cardio. He seems to, you know, he tuckers himself out. And he goes out there and gets tired. Uh, usually, it's cute when you say tuckers. Out. Yeah, thank you. I, 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 so that's the big worry for for me with him. But like I said, I thought that he was one of the guys in the division who skill wise had a, had a chance to to put up a pretty good fight against George St. Pierre, and that is, I guess, one of the reasons why I'm just sitting over here belly aching that he lost that fight to Martin Hammond. Johnny Hendricks is all tuckered out after a big day at Disneyland. Look, just carried you inside from the car. Just because you couldn't think of anybody that Josh Koscheck knocked out, you don't have to sit over there and <laughs> act like this. Anyway, that that's probably wraps up our discussion. Uh, for round two and uh, coming up oh we're going to do the well-rounded fight fan yeah okay do our uh, our our recommendations for things that uh, that the mixed martial arts fans the listeners of this podcast can do to to round out the rest of their lives yes because right now you know you're you're a pretty flat character let's be honest You, you pay too much attention to mma obviously if you both watch the fights and also spend some free time listening to podcasts like this one, Jesus, you got to do something else with your life. So, uh, Chad, your recommendation for the week, people to go out and do something else with their lives. What do you say? Well, it, 
it's going to be it's going to be personally related to me and and my being a little bit under the weather right now. <laughs> I'm going to say if you catch a cold, man, you got to hit up the Zycam. It's the uh, that's a good suggestion. Probably the best cold medicine out there on the market. Actually, Ben Folks's wife turned it on to me, turned me on to it when when we were in graduate school. Zycam, Z I C A M. It's zinc. They used to have nasal swabs that you would buy and stick them up your nose. Which I think were better. And no, yeah, they worked way better. But for some reason, the FDA wasn't really feeling that. So now (laughs) you you get these uh, these tablets that you put in your mouth and they dissolve. But uh, it's pretty awesome stuff, man. If if you just have the common cold a couple few days and you're over it. That's a, that's a pretty good suggestion. Um, I don't know if it makes people necessarily more well-rounded uh, as it just it gives them the opportunity to be more well-rounded because they're not at home, you know, recuperating. They'll be out in the streets faster looking to do stuff, looking to take advantage of whatever well, your suggestion is. OK, well, uh, my suggestion uh, is a film, uh, a, a documentary film entitled Protagonist, uh, which I will say is one of the finest documentary films I've ever seen, although it's going to sound stupid when I describe it to you. Uh, It follows the lives of some very different individuals whose lives have all followed a kind of similar character arc uh, from a a German radical leftist terrorist to an American kung fu enthusiast to a dude who used to be an anti-gay preacher who then realized he was, in fact, actually gay, uh, interesting stories, uh, really well done documentary. Look it up, find it on uh, Netflix, and uh, watch that bad boy. It's some good shit. So if you're feeling under the weather, take some Zycam and then watch Protagonist. With the Zycam though, you got to hop on it right away. Yeah, it's, you it's, and you got to stay on it. It's not like the kind of thing you can't just halfway through the cold. You can't be like, oh, I better start taking Zycam the first day that you start feeling. Yeah. Be honest with yourself. Fully sick, you, you have to be like, all right, coming. man, jump on it and stay on it. Anyway, uh, hopefully we'll get some money for that ridiculous product placement. That's how it works, right? They send you money after you've endorsed it. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's how it works. Anyway, we'll call our lawyers and our marketing people, and we will be back in a moment with. Round three. Round three. The finale of the first live season of The Ultimate Fighter went down uh, last weekend, last Friday. Um, I believe Michael Chiesa defeated Al Iaquinta in the final of Tough 15 to, to capture the much-lauded six-figure UFC contract. Uh, but the show itself uh, did fairly underwhelming ratings, I think, considering that it was the first season on FX. It was the first live season. They tried to, they tried to rev some excitement back into the show with a few new gimmicks. Um, and, Ben, I would ask you, did you watch even one episode of The Ultimate Fighter Season 15? Uh, I did. I went back on DVR and watched a couple before the finale, but because I hadn't been watching it, I watched the the first uh, when they did the first you know day of just constant fights or in order to see who gets in the house that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I DVR'd them all and just would sometimes go and watch the actual fights, but just really did not want to watch the actual show. And I never ever was even close to sitting down and watching one live even though that was the appeal, was that it was on live. How about you? Did you, did you watch any of those live? I, I actually watched... No, I didn't watch any of them live. I DVR'd them all and, and, and watched them later. I actually watched quite a bit of the season. There towards the end, I kind of lost interest and, uh, and didn't watch the last few episodes. Uh, but I did, I did watch a lot of the episodes. I fast-forwarded through most of them. Um, I, I watched just the fights at the end. Um, 
I, I started watching at the beginning because I wanted to see, you know, they, they did, they succeeded. The UFC uh, marketing gurus succeeded in piquing my interest a little bit with the promise of the new live format, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to tune in at the beginning and see what that was all about. I wanted to see the, the live fight, see what they did. And as it turned out, like the live format, was really nothing special uh, yeah. you had to in fact watch the show really closely to even know that it was live um, aside from having John Anik there uh, doing the excellent job that he always does uh, uh, introducing the live segments uh, it, it really changed nothing about the show I mean having the fight live essentially was the exact same as having it taped and and on you yeah know, well, as they used the to thing. air the uh, show first of all lest people think that we're just a couple of losers I talked to several colleagues in the MMA media uh, when I was uh, in Las Vegas for UFC 146, um, some of whom approached me about whether I had been watching it so that they could then guiltily confess to me that they had not been watching it, others of whom I approached in that exact same manner uh, with the exact same results. I didn't talk to anybody who was like, oh, yeah, of course, I watched every season. I was home Friday night and watched it right when they came on. Um, so that's... Kind of, we're definitely not the only ones there. I, I think maybe some of that is just general Ultimate Fighter fatigue, because uh, it's even though they change the little things, it's still kind of the same old shit every time. However, like you said, the the aspect of it being live uh, right now, because of the way they do that, it seems to be caught in between reality show and live sports competition. Because there's not enough actual sports. Uh, because it's like Bellator does this thing where every Friday night and they've got a, they've got a tournament and it's live and all that. But then you get a bunch of fights. You know, you don't just sit around waiting to see like one fight and get a, lo- a bunch of filler role, like material in between. So they're kind of caught in between those two things. There's not enough actual reality show stuff going on to where you feel like you're getting something that you don't get from just regular like pre-fight promo packages necessarily. Uh, but then you don't feel like you're sitting down to watch a full night of sporting events. And then again, it's Friday night. The UFC has events on most Saturday nights these days. How many nights the fans want to stay home and watch it? I mean, I think that the UFC has already passed that saturation point, and they're kind of feeling that some. I mean, Dana White says that some of that was necessity. They got that Fox deal done. FX already had their schedule pretty much booked up. Friday night was the only time they had open, so they had to take what they could get. Uh, and you know that that's one of the things that they'll change going forward, going back to some other night, and that's probably going to be a good move. At the same time, I just feel like I've been in that Ultimate Fighter house and that Ultimate Fighter gym for like the last six years of my life, and I am just so tired of it. Yeah, solid point. Fifteen seasons at this point—that is, which is a hell of a run. I mean, lot. for a reality show. Yeah, no, that's a great run. And uh, you know, I like I said when I started watching it, I, I watched it to see. Uh, how and why the the you know the the nuts and bolts of how the new live format would play out and it didn't really it didn't really play out at all except that except for that one time that and I actually wrote a column about this for ESPN.com the one time Dominic Cruz actually took advantage of the live format was right at the beginning of the season when uh, he threw I think his top pick was Justin Lawrence and he threw his top pick out there and just turned to Uriah Faber and was like okay who do you want who from your team wants to fight him and Uriah Faber was not ready for it and that was clear and he asked he didn't he didn't know what to do and he asked his team like who wants to fight justin lawrence and none of them put their hands up so it was like you know uh dominic cruz totally ambushed them on live tv and made them all look like suckers uh and and it was great it was awesome it was one of my my favorite moments in recent memory on this show and from the look on dana white's face he just looked pissed and you kind of got the impression that right after that was over they probably told dominic cruz don't do that again well and now you see like the coaches aren't going to fight which is a situation that we've seen yeah over and over again uh a lot of that kind of stuff just 
it feels like the same old stuff that didn't necessarily work that way or didn't necessarily work that that, that great initially and we're just going to keep doing it and keep doing it over and over again uh, i mean it also feels like with so many guys to sort through already the ufc roster has so many guys on it there's so many fights uh i kind of feel like i want to just be like tell me at the end who's important tell me you know like it's like when you you see a movie or you read a book where it has a bunch of named characters that are not going to be essential to the plot line. And you think, why did you waste my time telling me I needed to learn this person's name if they don't matter? Just call them Guy in the Hat or something if they don't matter. You know, at the end of the season, it's all every year. It's like every season, it's it's you know two or three guys, uh, four at the most. Who end up being important and who end up being somebody worth following afterwards that don't wash out pretty much immediately. So it seems like kind of like a waste of people's time and attention to try and follow all along and sort through that uh, when there's so much other stuff competing for their attention. Yeah, and, and you know, this season they got a great storyline in that Michael Chiesa's father passed away as soon as he as he came to to show up at the tough house and then i think that happened on the first episode and it, and it you know that's that's a, a terrible tragedy for his family but from the producers of of the ultimate fighters viewpoint you know a great storyline and I, and the only thing it really did is sort of reinforce the idea that the of how tired the the format of the show is because you know now we've seen everything that the show has to offer and the fact that you know kiesa's family tragedy yeah, even that's a, not exploited new. for TV and B like uh, felt like something that we'd sort of seen before just sort of reinforces our, our idea that something new needs to happen with this show if they're going to keep doing it at the same time. I don't know if there's anything that they can do with this show, because clearly one of the th- one of the things that the UFC and now the, the producers at FX like and one of the reasons that producers like reality TV in, in general is that it's super cheap to make because. Well, for starters, you don't have to pay the actors, and yeah. you don't have to. Well, and for the, from the UFC's perspective, when those guys enter the UFC, it's with a, a pretty good marketing head of steam, and they enter to not the best contracts necessarily. Right. And I'd love to see, you know, to that point, I'd love to see the UFC and now FX revamp the show and do something completely different with it. Maybe go more of a like a twenty four seven style with it, where where you just follow single fighters who are saying, about to make their UFC debuts. Well, see, that's the thing that Dana White was saying is that uh, it's like a twenty four seven, except they fight at the end. Well, it's not like a twenty four seven a because the production quality is not nearly as high as a twenty four seven b. We already care about the guys on 24-7. That's why we're tuning in. You know, you're trying to introduce the guy and build him up and then have him fight all at once. And that's just too much. That's a lot to ask for from your video producers. Here's my, my suggestion. Okay. You want to mix it up? You want to do something different? I do. Make, I do. Us, make us care about it? I do. House full of guys. There's, what is it? What do they start with? You know. 16. They six, start with 16. 16 fighters. How about this, Chad? I'm going to blow your mind. You start with 15 fighters, one serial killer. <laughs> wow, okay, yeah, I like it. My suggestion was going to be you get Brett Michaels, you put them <laughs> all on a bus, and you know, you just see what happens. You just you just let you just let nature take its course. <laughs> well, I think we're both trying to go in different directions there. I'm not saying either one of us is right or, or wrong or uh, you know, going to ruin TV forever. Uh, but uh, I think we're in agreement that Ultimate Fighter Season 16 is going to have a hard time uh, getting us amped about it. Yeah, Kiesa, though, he's he's from right up the road in Spokane. Yeah. And when I say right up the road, I mean three, three hours, hours away. away because yeah. when you live in Montana, that, that's, that means right up the road. Um, well, that, you know, that probably brings to a close our discussion of, of the Ultimate Thank Fighter and, and nearly brings to a close uh, our, our 
third episode of the co-main event podcast we'd be remiss though if we let you go without uh one of our other new features just saying stuff the part of the show where ben and i present a single idea or or statement that we then cannot be challenged on that we don't have to defend in any way because at the end of the day we are just saying stuff ben uh what are you just saying this week i'm just saying giving the ultimate fighter winner a motorcycle that he has no clue how to ride just as he enters into his the most important phase of his professional athletic career is the worst idea since giving Chris Lieben all the free booze he could drink. I'm wow. just saying. Wow, okay, just saying. I am just saying that December 10th, 2008, the UFC fight for the troops, Josh Koscheck knocked out Yoshi Yuki Yoshida. There we go. And you know what? Time to bring him back. Time to bring <laughs> Yoshiyuki Yoshida back. Just saying. Well, that's our episode for this week. Uh, thanks for checking us out, as always. Uh, if you like the show, head on over to iTunes and, and like us there. Give us a solid review. Check us out on Stitcher Radio, whatever that is, uh, if you're far more technologically advanced than we are. Um, if, if you have a question, comment, concern, email us at comaineventpodcast at gmail.com. But for now, I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're out. That, that's the same thing I said last week. We're out. Like maybe that could be our thing. Well, I feel like we need to come up with a better thing. We at least well, need to talk about it before. I would like to hear it. Yeah, well, I think maybe this is an all-fair discussion.